and we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we review our graphic novel of the month for the month of May, and that would be Image Comics Month, The Red Star, Volume 1. This collects issues encompassing the Battle of Kar Dathras Gate, issues 1 through 4 and 6 through 9. This series was originally published by Image Comics starting in 1999. The trade paperback we read, this graphic novel, Volume 1, was published by IDW in 2014. Christian Gossett is the creative visionary of this series, both as penciler and writer. Equally important, he is the leader of Team Red Star, a nine-person team who helped create, develop, and manage the Red Star line across all media. And joining me today to review this is JJ. JJ, how are you? I'm doing great, Angus. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. And JJ, whenever you bring up a suggestion of a graphic novel that we should read and it comes with a strong, arousing recommendation by you, an endorsement, we're reading it. And boy, I was never, ever, ever so surprised in a graphic novel like this. This is unlike anything I've ever read before and just blew me away. It really is an experience and to have explored it as it was coming out back at the 1999 into the 2000s was really something mind-blowing and we'll get into it but all of the things that came out of red star and the proliferation of the ip much like another ip that we might get give a tip of the hat to from image as well but i'll save that for a little bit later sounds good sounds good and jj as we always do we open up with a little kirby kernel a little kernel of knowledge about our namesake jack hey welford fire up the tractor And in this Kirby Colonel, we have Kirby going cosmonaut. Yes, of course, with the Red Star and that Soviet theme, we have Kirby and the Red Ghost. The Red Ghost and his super apes were created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and first appeared in Fantastic Four number 13 in April of 1963 and then came back in issue number 29 in August of 1964. Ivan Kragoff was born in Leningrad in what was at the time the Soviet Union. Before becoming the Red Ghost, Ivan was a Soviet scientist bent on beating the Americans to the moon and claiming it for the communist empire. He assembled a crew of three trained primates, Mikhlo the gorilla, Igor or Igor the baboon, and Piotr the orangutan, which he subjected to specialized training regiments of his own design. He then took off on his lunar rocket ship on behalf of the USSR, while on the very next panel, the Fantastic Four, were aiming their own rocket for the same destination. Kragoff knew enough of the Fantastic Four's history, and he purposefully designed his rocket in such a way that he and his crew would be heavily exposed to those cosmic rays that he expected would infuse them with superpowers. This attempt was indeed successful. Kragoff gained the ability to become as intangible and invisible as a ghost. Miklo became superhumanly strong and durable. 
Igor became, or actually gained, the ability to shapeshift. It could transform into nearly anything. And Pieter gained the ability to attract and repulse objects. Wow. So this JJ looks like Jack created a very interesting hybrid of the Fantastic Four experience, but making them indeed those Soviet agents as we were in the space race between the U.S. and the Soviets at the time. Exactly. Well, what I think is interesting was the purposeful intent of Ivan the Red Ghost in seeking out the power-inducing cosmic rays where, and maybe I'm mistaken, but I always felt like the Fantastic Four was more of a, they were simply meaning to explore, and little did they know that the exposure would grant them their powers. Exactly, exactly. So call it, I don't know if we'd say sinister intent, but there was definitely intent there for Kragoff to gain those powers, having that knowledge of those cosmic rays. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, and he's creating a, a foil for the team, which is kind of interesting that they never really took off as as much as they they maybe could have. I mean, they were a perfect foil for the team, four against four, each with different powers that seemingly makes them unstoppable. The U.S. versus the Soviet Union, there, there was a lot of potential there, but I don't think that they ever caught on in popularity. Unlike somebody else who also made their appearance in Fantastic Four issue 13, that of The Watcher. Oh, wow. Oh, great poll. Matter of fact, the entire Disney Plus What If series right now has centered around The Watcher. So what, what a momentous issue that issue 13. Exactly. Well, now that we've had our little Kirby kernel, let's head over for a little creative chatter about our writer and artist, Christian Gossett. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Creative chatter. All right, JJ. Wow. There is a lot to be said for Christian Gossett. This guy truly is a force to be reckoned with. He began his career in 1988 on Tales of the Ninja Warriors for CFW Publishing. CFW is a martial arts supply distributor and received a pitch from Bradley Peter Parker, a comics artist and writer. The pitch was to publish a black and white comics anthology in which their martial arts catalog could be advertised. You know, the late 80s was huge in black and white boom. There was a trend going there, and that was in full swing. And CFW just greenlit the anthology. So Gossett cut his teeth there. He then was tasked with creating, writing, and drawing, and inking, and lettering these pages every month. And from there, ended up getting recognized. And upon the recommendation of his friend, Frank Gomez, Gossett was hired by Lucasfilm, and then subsequently Dark Horse comics to pencil the first two issues of Star Wars Tales of the Jedi. Wow. That was a pretty groundbreaking series as well. We've talked about Dark Horse before. Moving into the movie IPs, 
and bringing them to comics. So previously they had done it with Alien and then Predator, and now to jump in with the Star Wars Extended Universe, they had several several stories already. This wasn't by far the first of the Star Wars stories, but it really left a uh, incredible history and was extremely popular as well. Indeed, Tales of the Jedi was an incredible landmark in Star Wars comics. From the very beginning, when Star Wars was licensed over to Marvel, and there was this big push and popularity of Star Wars comics, comics along with just these novels that would be produced after Return of the Jedi and just such volume to satiate the appetite of Star Wars fans across the world was amazing. And when Dark Horse came to a publishing agreement with Lucas and Lucas maintained all of the ownership of the IP, it, it truly was Lucas then hiring Gossett to come in there. But that Dark Horse label for so long really made a mark with Star Wars fandom. It was most likely, J.J., the generation right after ours, because I grew up reading the Marvel versions of it. But I have gone back now, and since Marvel reacquired the licensing when they acquired Lucas, all of those Dark Horse comics, who were originally published on Dark Horse, are now available on Marvel Unlimited. I've been able to go back and read that stuff. And that extended universe is amazing. Matter of fact, Christian Gossett was the first to render the double-bladed lightsaber, the one that we would eventually see Darth Maul wield there in Phantom Menace. So his artwork was first published when he was, again, only 19 years old here for these Tales of the Jedi comics. Now, following this, Gossett was again contracted to work on the fourth Tales of the Jedi story arc entitled Star Wars Tales of the Jedi Dark Lords of the Sith, in which he would create the artwork used in the first five comics of that arc. Likewise, Gossett worked in conjunction with author Kevin J. Anderson on Star Wars Tales of the Jedi Redemption, in which the character of Ulic Kel Droma was redeemed for his actions in the Great Sith War. In conjunction with this work on Tales of the Jedi, Gossett also illustrated a number of articles in the Star Wars Adventure Journal and was interviewed along with Tom Vich and Dan Thorsland in the Adventure Journal article Making Star Wars Comics Come Alive, which was featured in Star Wars Adventure Journal 2. Later, selected pieces of his work were showcased in the Best of the Star Wars Adventure Journal issues 1 through 4, where Gossett was selected to be a featured artist. Now, during the early years of his career, Gossett kept in touch with other Star Wars fans through discussions on the Fido-Net Star Wars Echo. So he was very much in the early stages of adoption to bulletin boards and discussion threads in their earliest form on the net. Now, following his work on Star Wars, Gossett provided the artwork for several video games, including Apocalypse, which was published by Activision and starred actor Bruce Willis. Gossett would also write the script for Apocalypse, thus adding the necessary touches to Willis's lines. He performed the same duties as he did on Apocalypse and was again contracted by Activision to work on their video game Pitfall 3D Beyond the Jungle. Now, this is leading up to something pretty significant here. Gossett would take all of those experiences and eventually start work on a major comics project entitled The Red Star, which is a story 
of epic mythology based on the Cold War. The Red Star would later be made into a video game, which was released for PlayStation 2. The Red Star is a comic series, first produced by Image Comics, then produced by Archangel Studios, and then IDW got licensing rights to release these volumes in 2014. So, this is quite the career progression for Christian Gossip. Yeah, he really, at a very young age, started making a name for himself, got himself recognized, knew how to work the fan base to build excitement about his work, and then start working on some really high-profile work, like the Star Wars line, which just continued to gain more fans and you see the snowball effect here. Indeed. It, it makes such a logical progression when you look at his career and who he was around as far as the creative influencers would be essentially mentoring him as he was working in the early stages of his career. So with that, JJ, let's head into a little comics archaeology and see what gems you brought for us today. All right, JJ, what gems here have you mined in comics archaeology? Well, the Red Star, just the topic alone, is so rich. It was a challenge to try to limit it, but I think there's two key things we want to talk about here. And the first thing is the, I guess we could call it a multimedia proliferation of the IP similar to another IP that got its start at, at Image. And then we can look at the way the comic is produced and maybe look at how comics have changed over the ages in their production. So the first part is that after he got his start with Image and Arch Archangel Studios, he became incredibly popular. And the Red Star was just a skyrocketing skyrocketing in sales he actually decided to leave image at this point once he left he started exploring a lot of media angles not only comics but also video games tabletop role-playing games and producing for television or the movies so he in one sense was robert kirkman of Walking Dead fame before there was a Robert Kirkman at Image. He kind of took this idea of his and the popularity that it came with and worked it into all these different media and really exploring, well, what, you, what could you do with this IP? And this was one of the things, we've said it a number of times when we've talked about Image and creator rights. This is something that artists and writers who own the IP, who own the idea, could not do in the early days of comics. He completely owns the, the IP of the Red Star and built his own team around it. 
a team that was multi-dimensional in a number of different areas, not just comic, but you know, he had folks that were working with computer graphics and 3D art and digital effects and in at one point, I think in the later volumes, he even had the I think it's the Weta studio, the ones who did the special effects for Lord of the Rings, they were doing colors for the Red Star comics. So this proliferation was was extremely groundbreaking. And it was happening during a time when I think a lot of brands were trying to cross as many genres as possible. I know that one of the early collected trades or collected deluxe editions of the first volume of the Red Star not only went into the production of the book, kind of the behind the scenes, but various pages had a URL at the bottom of each page where you could go from the physical book and get specific content that you could only get from accessing the URL that you found in the that you could find in the book. So he was blending the experience because at this point in the early 2000s reading comics on a digital platform were really only done by web comics or folks that have scanned images into PDF format or other compressed formats and it wasn't a real common practice. So here he was, he's bridging the two worlds, the physical world of the comic and the digital world where he made a lot of his art. JJ, you're bringing up some really important background facts here about Christian Gossett. When we're looking at this career progression and Team Red Star, I can't help but think that his work over with LucasArts was heavily influenced by their structure over there. He had to have been inspired by George Lucas's licensing juggernaut and understanding that, okay, look, if I've got a unique set of IP that I want to exploit in all the positive senses of the term, particularly as being that creative, I've got to build a team here and I can't do it all myself. And I am equally impressed with not only his vision as a creator and writer and illustrator, but then his ability to, I'm not going to say suppress ego, but recognize where he needed complementary talents to make his vision a reality, and he went out and he did it. That's not easy. Not in the least. And... You talk about creating his vision, and that's something very important, and we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about the art, but let's just say right now that the art of the Red Star is a combination of hand-drawn art, digital coloration, and 3D-generated images all blended together in the panels and backgrounds and layout of the book. So there was a lot of blending and blurring of the edges of where the hand-drawn art ended and the computer-generated 3D images and so forth started. And it gave it gave the comic a certain, well, kind of at the same time, a certain etherealness and a weight of reality that I think we'll, well, let's save that to when we get to the 
the art. We'll, we'll come back to those those topics. But that does lead me into my second topic, and that's digital art in comics. So in order to talk about that, I think first it's important to talk about, in at least a brief way, what was the process for the majority of time that comics were created. So I'm calling this the analog era. So from the 1930s to the 1980s, basically everything was done by hand and it was done with physical objects. So first you have the writer who produces a story and script and usually this is typed out and the pages are handed to a penciler and the penciler breaks down the story into individual pages leaving room for the word balloons and the scripting sometimes working those into the patterns as well. At this point you've got a physical copy of the page and a physical copy of the dialogue, the words, the story. And those then go to the next part, which is the penciled artwork is going to get inked. And the inking sometimes is done by the same person doing the, the drawing, sometimes not. And the inking gives it the dark, the dark weighty lines that we we've come to know and established as comic book art. From there, they do the coloration. And this is really interesting. What they would do was they'd actually paint onto the pages and apply the color to the artwork to the black and white artwork and they would have instructions for here's the color in c i think it's cyk where they would break down the color by its type and when they went to the printing process the printers would cut out these shapes that would then be the color printing on the page so you'd get a printing of the black and then this would be layered with the colors the big blocks of colors and then the letterer comes in by hand drawing in all the word balloons and all the letters and all the shapes and then once it's all put together the the piece of paper the the oversized sheet is photographed and then reduced down to the size that would be used for a a comic and then it's produced so as you can see there's a lot of steps along the way and a lot of hands involved with it and it's a fairly time intensive process especially if you make a mistake and you have to fix your mistake you're fixing it right there on that page and you know sometimes that means you have to start over on the page well in the 1980s was the beginning of the digital era shatter was a digital comic created by peter B. Gillis, the writer, and Mark Sains, the illustrator, and it was first published by First Comics. So First Comics was one of the first independent comics that made a name for itself in the 80s. And Shatter is a dystopian science fiction fantasy setting, kind of like Blade Runner or We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which was eventually made into the movie Total Recall. So it had a lot of the cyberpunk feel to it. So just to give you an idea of how challenging it was to do digital art in the 80s, he was doing this on a Mac Plus computer. And the Mac Plus computer, first off, they were only two tones, black and white. <laughs> there, was, there was no color to it. So he would take the rough pencils as kind of a, a way to get sign-off from editors and then he'd go in and he'd recreate the drawings from scratch using the mac plus computer and the mcpaint program now let's i have to i have to really emphasize here how limited these early computers were the system had only one megabyte of ram it used a floppy disk drive as a internal drive you know 
this is what the software was running on. And there was an external floppy drive where he would save and load his images. He did all of the art using a mouse. And actually, Michael Gold was the editor of uh, First Comics at the time. And he, with Mike Sains, agreed that they would do everything in Shatter, would be performed on the Mac that included the art, the lettering, the logo, the advertising, even the editorial that went into the comic was all done on the Mac Plus computer. The only thing that wasn't was the color. <laughs> so they they pretty much did everything at that point. And this originally was released in a magazine in March 1985. It was a British computer magazine called Big K, which was published by IPC Magazines. In June of 85, the Shatter Special Number 1 was first published, and then they ran the Shattered Stories as a backup to Mike Grell's John Sable Freelance. So from June to November of 1985, it ran in John Sable Freelance issues 25 to 30. And then December of 1985, Shatter releases its number one issue. It sells out completely. 60,000 printed copies. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but First Comics never did multiple runs. So that was it. So this is a this is a rarity out there. So here we are, and by 1988, this it ran for 14 issues. So this is the very, very beginning of the digital era. From here, in 1998, Sains goes on to create for Marvel, Iron Man Crash, which Marvel claims to be the first completely computer-generated graphic novel. So here, we've got a major character from comic history rendered by an artist completely in a digital medium and the coloring and everything was done the lettering was done completely through computer means and not to be left behind in february of 1990 dc releases batman digital justice by artist pepe moreno so here we are in the 90s it's really starting to the digital trend is really starting to blossom so by 1999 we have the red star being released by image Nowadays, virtually everything is digital. Very few of the big houses still work in paper. So what they end up doing is they create these files that they share through Dropbox or other file sharing means, and it passes from person to person to person. So it's completely digital. And, you know, if you make a mistake, it's easy to back it up and try again. So really, you know, from a very meager start, like really crawling with some of the early efforts in Shatter to, you know, starting to get up and learning how to walk with Iron Man Crash and Batman Digital Justice, we finally move into an era where in the, after 1999, we're blending in the work here. We're blending computer and hand-drawn work all in the same story to the point that now most artists do everything digital, right? They'll, they may do their sketches by hand, but they'll quickly s scan those in and then they'll do their actual drawing or rendering right on top of it. And sometimes they're doing their own inking in that same way. So really, really just amazing, amazing changes that have happened to the industry. And I think we're, you know, we're all the beneficiaries of that. Oh, we indeed are. And, and JJ, you, you really did mine two fantastic gems here within comics archaeology, because with having such a landmark title, 
as the Red Star. This truly allows us to chronicle the history of digital and how this industry evolved now into that being the standard and norm. And when I look at Gossett's work and I'm thinking about George Lucas coming back to film and releasing Phantom Menace and the prequels, and then looking at Gossett's work, I can't help but think that Gossett being in that ecosystem, in that Lucas ecosystem, was able to take all of those influences and things that he learned, crafted into his vision, and deploy it with such elegance in this title. Just absolutely brilliant. So thank you for bringing all of this into focus, because this even makes more sense as to how Gossett's career evolved. Well, it's always my pleasure, but mind you, we barely scratch the surface of digital arts and comics. Sains is a is a great person who has gone on to not only influence comics, but the way comics are produced, being one of the first people to develop software for creating comics. I mean, there's, there's so much we could talk about here that this might be something we uh, put a pin in it and come back to later and really, really explore it and, and, and do it some justice there. I agree. I think this is worthy of its own episode within Comics Archaeology and just create a Comics Archaeology episode chronicling the history and evolution of digital comics because it's, it, it is absolutely mind-blowing to see the stuff that can be produced uh, but also at the same time, I'll go, I'll go to what to raise pet peeves, and that is, man, they begin to lose the humanity once they're working on those pads and and doing everything digitally. It, it's 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 a challenge to keep that human element in there, and I and I hear him loud and clear every time he he brings that up. And I have to say here, in, in with Gossett, let's hop over to that literary aisle and get to it in our review of The Red Star. Land ho! Our land ho! There's our literary aisle. All right, JJ, here we are on that literary aisle. And at first, I'd like to open up with the story of The Red Star in Gossett's own words. He says that the Red Star is a love story, a love story that survives a war of unimaginable brutality. War is hell. It's terrible and unfortunately very profitable thing. The heroes of the Red Star are soldiers who realize the wars they are fighting are purely for the worst kind of profit imaginable. So they begin a quest against their former leaders. The technology of the Red Star is much like our own, except that magic is a common fact of life. They use magic the way we use electricity. It's just a common everyday thing. The most powerful magic is, of course, reserved for use by law enforcement and the military. The story takes place in the lands of the Red Star, one of the many countries who are almost constantly at war in some godforsaken corner of the planet. One of them, Infantry Captain Marcus Antares discovers the dark secret behind military-industrial sorcery and the incredible weapons it provides for soldiers the world over. I won't give it away, but basically, magic in the world of the Red Star is manufactured and maintained through a process that is undeniably evil and endlessly profitable. 
Marcus discovers this. From that moment on, he is the target of the murderous leaders who control the powerful transnational consortium that regulates the magic. Marcus goes missing, and his true love, his wife, Maya, discovers why. She is the sorceress in command aboard a sky furnace, a flying warship. Her ship is the RSS Konstantinov, about five times the size and power of a shield helicarrier. And with the help of her crew, she steals the Konstantinov and begins a quest to save Marcus. Wow. It is a powerful and emotional story. And that's one of the, I think that's one of the reasons why it gained such popularity. First and foremost, the art, which will give it its own due here shortly. But the story is quintessential. It's archetypical. It reminds me of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. Of Orpheus and Eurydice. In this, Orpheus goes into Hades to retrieve his love, who was bitten by a poisonous snake on the day of their wedding and died, and her spirit went to Hades. And Orpheus was going to go into Hades and bring her out. And this is the same archetypical story that we have here in The Red Star. And I don't mean to belittle it by the fact that it's an archetypical story. I'm actually thinking that's what makes it more powerful. It is a story of the modern day. It is a story in a fantastical setting. And it carries that weight of gravitas with it where Maya has lost her husband at at this climactic battle, which ends up being essentially the, the straw that breaks the, the country's back. Basically, they've extended themselves too far, and in losing this battle, it really causes problems as other countries around the Red Star end up and end up rebelling, right? This is this is the the nature of the of the world that they're in. And in the retreat, she loses sight of her husband. She's trying to get to her husband, trying to find her husband, but they're you know, they're gating everybody out. They've they've opened gates so that everybody that can get to the gates can get out of the danger zone. And she's actually prevented from going to look for him by another soldier and carried unconscious across the uh, across the gate to safety. And she has felt that longing, that that missing piece of her for nine years as the story actually begins. So you you're the first part of this is told really in the form of a flashback and it's such a wonderful it's such a wonderful mechanism for telling the first part of the story she's going to the grave of her husband on the anniversary of his death and she's telling the story of that last day to an old soldier from an earlier war and it's just such a touching it's just such a touching thing to hear about her love of him and how it keeps her going and how much she misses him. I was equally moved by that, but I was also touched by the generational conversation going on between the old soldier and Maya and how things were different back in his time during his war. And that, I think, is a massive strength within Gossett's work here is that you get the insights, thoughts, opinions from just about everyone 
that Maya encounters throughout this story and provides unique perspectives on what you're witnessing here as a reader, both in the dialogue bubbles, but also in the visuals that are then depicted on these pages. It's really masterfully done. It is a deep work. It's a complete work from a story perspective. And you're dead on as far as the embracing of universal myths and legends. There's no doubt in my mind, whether it was through osmosis being at LucasArts and getting the just breathing in everything and anything Star Wars that is steeped in Joseph Campbell's writings and the hero's journey and all that good stuff. All those elements are here. And then turning on its ear, reversing the gender roles of that uh, particular story of Orpheus there. And now having Maya, the wife being the one trying to go out and find her husband lost to the war. And I'll just lost in quotes. It was, it's just spectacular. Yes. And you, you bring up a great point about having multiple points of view. So the era of the lands of the red star take, took shape about a hundred years in the past as the story goes. So to have a generational character like the old soldier tell you how different it was in their day, he's really trying to bring to bear how nations transform when they put certain things like profit and money first over the good of their people. And that's that's ultimately part of the story as well. It's it's as much about her seeking Marcus, who, and this really isn't a spoiler because she's looking for him. So what's happened to him is he's, as a result of this near-death experience, he's crossed over and is able to see what is happening in the spirit realm. And it opens his eyes quite literally to this other world. And that's where he's been all this time. And the second part of the volume that we've read talks about how she, in trying to quell an insurrection with a neighboring country, is delivered a message from Marcus, from beyond, a message basically letting her know that he is still, he is still there. I don't want to say he's still alive because, you know, it's kind of hard to define, but he's in the spirit realm and he's fighting a battle in the spirit realm. And he's basically saying, come get me. And that's where, you know, the things really kick off. And that's kind of the cliffhanger of this of this first volume released by IDW. That's a really tight story. It moves very quickly. And like we often do, I found myself reading it carefully, enjoying the story portion of it, but then going back and flipping through and really just letting myself enjoy and take in the pages and, and the artwork. And so many of them were two-page spreads. So maybe this is a good point for us to go on to the art. I definitely think it is because the visual storytelling is on full epic display. And to share again Gossett's words, now on the art, the creative process is much like an animated feature, except it is released in comic book form. It was the series that showed the industry how 3D could be used in a comic book. 
Since then, there have been a few examples, but none of them last very long. Number one, it's expensive. It's like making a big budget blockbuster every time we make a story. This is why I'm glad IDW re-released these original stories. They are a milestone in comic storytelling technology, and they indeed are. First wise choice Gossett made was the story that he wanted to tell. It is just steeped in human emotion, in wanting to care about these characters and this story. And because of that, the technology does not get in the way of the story, but perfectly complements the story. Because visually, this book backs up the story so well. And the tasteful choices that were made of the blending of the 3D imagery with the more traditionally rendered art is spectacular and is really, truly, as Gossett said here, created something that is a milestone. And, you know, JJ, I'll, I'll say this. I don't know if you could call something that is now just a little over 20 years old timeless, but this has a timeless quality to it. It absolutely does. And reading it again 20 years later, it still had the same impact. It still carried the same weight. Let's let's take apart what we're talking about when we're talking about the digital art here. So what we have is we've got, especially in the early volumes, we've got Gossett rendering drawings of the characters. But he's putting the characters into a 3D environment. So in the first part of the story, Maya is on this train that's going to the graveyard. Well, it's such a large graveyard that the train is, you know, there's many different cycles of the train that go round and round to all the different areas. And the the old soldier even says at one point that, well, if I were to visit all of my friends who died, I would spend all day on this train because they would be, they're all over in this, in this graveyard. But the train, this elevated train, kind of like a tram that you would see at Disney World, but it's suspended so its track is above it and it you know kind of hangs down like gondolas and it just it's beautifully rendered in 3D and the magic here is where Gossett is putting these hand-drawn characters into into this setting and they feel perfectly natural to the point that they can use the digital effects to do some really neat tricks, like when she's sitting there holding the flowers to take to the grave site, and you're looking over her shoulder out the window at all the graves, they're actually able to replicate the image and reflect it as if it were on the glass. And again, that helps bring the reality to bear and I think which we talked about earlier helps give this the feeling of gravitas, the feeling of reality being grounded in very concrete terms. Even though a lot of this stuff is beyond the scope of imagination, you know, a, a sky furnace, which is quite literally a mile long thing suspended in the air. And all of the technology that they use and the the weapons of the infantrymen, which are called hooks, which they wield telekinetically. For me, 
I, I almost feel like the hooks are a cooler weapon than lightsabers. And they just look so neat when they're being wielded telekinetically. They are. They indeed are. And the other thing which really stood out for me in those first panels was the introduction, our first glimpse of how magic would be used in the book. And it was by Maya, as she's referred to, being thanked Comrade Sorceress for creating a small little flame in the palm of her hand to light the cigarette of the veteran sitting across from her. So there, there you're establishing the normalcy of magic and magic right here being employed for a very simple or menial task. The way that they use magic is so amazing in that it's been elevated to the point of a technology and so much of it is commonplace. One of her prime responsibilities as a as a sorceress is she's in the transformation chamber which is basically a housing within these sky furnaces where she goes through a sorceress transformation and channels raw energy to basically she becomes this energy and channels it out of the chamber and from the sky you know basically firing at the ground below decimating the forces that they're trying to defeat to the point where when they're using and they don't call it spells they call them protocols so in order to talk to somebody you use an info protocol in the sense of talking to somebody over a long distance you can do an a info protocol that allows you to talk to somebody just audio or you can get an image of them there's this fascinating one where she plays back the last images or the last several minutes of her her dear friend's life who was in part of this battle in the later portion of the book. She's the one who knocked Maya out and forced her to get pulled back and gated out of the failed battle. She gets dropped into this insurrection and ends up dying as part of it. Well, Maya's looking to find what happened to her. She's not going to repeat what happened to her husband. She's going to go back and find her friend. And the way she plays through this protocol, which... If you think about it, it's a clairvoyant spell where she's looking at the past and reliving the past. But it's it has such a feeling of technology. She's, in a sense, speaking to the spell in a very, I guess, computerized approach where it's like, you know, advance 15 seconds, like you're watching a videotape. But she's actually walking through this and, and asking questions like, when does she die? And take me to that moment. And all of this stuff, it's really, really amazing, the portrayal here of the magic. Oh, I could I could go on about it forever. I could too, but I, I'm going to just shift us slightly over to the rendering of archetypes and universal imagery, and in particular, Kar Dothra, the Eternal. JJ, if that is not a variation on the theme of a Grim Reaper, I don't know what is. That is absolutely spectacular here in the page. And there are these images that Gossett chooses to use in framing these characters that, again, the choices are just on the mark. I can't say uh, enough of it. It's so gripping that you don't even have to read the dialogue bubbles or the bits of narration. 
to know exactly what is going on in these pages. The, the visual storytelling is equally, if not more, impressive than the written words that are in this book. And it really stands on its own. The blending of the 3D with the more traditionally rendered images, I, I can't say enough. You have to pick it up and read it. Just brilliant. If I have one thing that I would say that's maybe not as, or maybe is more critical than what we've been saying. It, first off, let me just say I love the art. It is very well executed. The one thing that troubles me a little bit is that at sometimes it goes a little to excess, meaning that sometimes they're doing cool things because they can. And in general, it's done in service of the story. And sometimes it's maybe it feels like a little shorthand or a little shortcut and it it almost feels a little like murky like they tried to combine too many things but those are rare points uh, i think what we have here is a real experimentation with this new approach to blending hand-drawn art with 3D graphics and computer coloration and all the tricks that you can pull in to extend that realism in how the story is rendered well said it is an experiment there's no doubt about it it shines in the areas where one scene in particular i just can't get over and it's where we see and this is the dialogue how many souls must you now imprison troika before you realize your crimes against our people and and here is this ethereal spirit with what looks to be like a claymore i mean just a massive great sword in her hand and, and she is blocking that sickle uh weapon that hook weapon from from coming down and claiming the soul of this fallen soldier on the field of battle and you have the dark black smoke plumes going up in the background and the light being emitted out of fires that are there. It's just an amazing blending of different generated media because you clearly see that this sword was made to look like it's a, a the whole thing, the, the spirit holding the sword and the sword itself are very ethereal and, and spiritual, yet there's enough materially there to hold off finishing off this soldier and claiming of its soul. It's just really, really well done. But this is just an example. But you did bring up a fantastic point. I did notice that there are some panels that when it came to background, you could have easily take background, replicate background in next panel, almost a cut and paste. And I noticed that happening when we got into the black and white sections or panels within this book that don't have all of the the coloring and ornate detail. So I, I don't want to say they took some panels off, but some of those panels just let me, left me cold. And I was going, well, okay. I, I know you want to break up in a book in order to maintain the interest of the reader panels, and you don't want the same colors and shapes and things to lull the reader into a familiarity pattern where they begin to gloss over stuff. But at the same time, you can be too cute about it and truly break the rhythm of the book. 
And, and I felt that they broke the rhythm of the book in a couple areas here. But now, I mean, we truly are getting hypercritical here. Right. The one thing that we should also emphasize is the scale of this, in that the figures are meant to be a massive scale, so that the figure of Troika and the Red Woman are beyond the scale of humans. They have this otherworldly quality. Yeah, it's kind of like Darth Vader and Obi-Wan going going at it, but they they are more they are more than physical they are more they more represent ideals which i think that's why he chose the scale he did why he chose the colors he did why he rendered them the way he did you know the mechanical industrial troika and the almost human looking beautiful ethereal red woman who needs a knight and that knight is marcus who steps up to carry on her quest and help her in her quest to bring the country back to where it was i think the art is it is something special to behold indeed and what even makes those larger scale characters pop even more off the page is how grounded the troop versus troop depictions are on the battlefield. Those are gritty. They are steeped in lethality. It pulls no punches with regard to showing bloodshed, bullets going in bodies, this hook weapon slicing into folks. It's vicious. Gossett definitely shows you the ugly and brutal side of war when it comes to troop-on-troop engagement and grounds the story very effectively that way. Agreed. Wow, what more is there to say here? How were your impressions here as we're discussing the illustrations, the panel usage in this work? I mean, it, it definitely breaks convention in so many different ways. Especially in the fact that they avoid using the gutter. They want the artwork to bleed all the way to the to the edge if possible. Panel overlapping panel. A lot of times the there is no hard line between panels and oftentimes in in a in a really expansive two-page spread you might see the same figures moving through that space so you'll see them as you start reading at the beginning of the panel and then as you continue reading the word balloons you what you're doing is you're following the characters as they move through that space so you'll see the same character rendered multiple times but what you're seeing is as if you had a wide angle view on that particular scene and just letting the figures move through the scene and for me jj that made me feel that i was viewing a living mural and that that was the effect that it had on me i i it's like this is one big picture but it is chronologically here continuing to tell the story and i'm following these characters through this broad canvas vice going panel to panel to panel one page in particular really struck me and it's the one where we have Maya's friend who helps her out and she's talking with her and then there is this arcing uh, effect of i think it's marcus or or someone else who is actually being shot and killed and and then is 
is kind of draped over the head of of her friend as she's continuing to talk. It's amazing on, on the page. It totally defies convention, yet is so powerful. I think as I was as I was going through here, there were a number of times that it struck me that they were trying to perhaps mimic or pay homage to some of the Soviet propaganda art in that the figures, the way the figures are drawn larger than life, the tonality that they were using, how a particular color like the red woman, the red predominated the scene, you know, faces and profile. It was, you know, like a figure with another more idealized figure in the background representing belief. This is what I believe in. It was, again, it, they thought about this as they as they went through it, and it's um, really quite well done. They did. And then, they, and then in some instances, they went literal and very overt. Uh, there's one section here where there's this massive propaganda poster saying, Your father fought, honor him, join the Red Fleet. And, and right then and there, I'm going, okay, wait a second. This looks like it was just completely ripped from the pages of history and deployed over here in this story and just, oh, exquisitely done. And to harken back to what you just said, this poster art shows up again in the poses of some of those troops on the battlefield and it captures that freeze frame. And it's just extremely well done. So... Tiji, when we're looking at this work, here we are 20 plus years later. There is a legacy that's been established here. How would you say Gossett created this legacy? What would you say the legacy is with regard to the Red Star? And what did you learn from this read this second time around for you? Well, I think let's go back to that point where we touched upon the similarities in the Red Star franchise and the Walking Dead franchise. I think that Kirkman definitely was able to manage the brand a little bit better to the point of the television shows, the the bottles of wine, Walking Dead red wine. It went so far beyond the comics. And Gossman really worked to do that as well with not only the comics but the video game which i remember having the video game in my house and the role-playing game the tabletop role-playing game during the the d20 explosion of the early 2000s it was a way of keeping the brand alive and well in everybody's mind i think if there's a legacy here these stories can continue on i think he really needs to make that leap to video to to the television or or movie screen and you know he's done some work already where he's done i wouldn't call it a fan film but he did he did a, a film related to star trek that i think received some some good success but i think right now warner brothers is the entity holding the license for the red star and i hope they i hope they work on something there this is a this is a great time for this to be for this to be realized in that sort of format and it could really revitalize the brand and bring it to a whole new generation yeah this screams an hbo max series it would be an incredible streaming series since warner's has 
control over it. That's why I chose HBO Max. But, you know, name your flavor. Netflix, Amazon Prime, any of the Hulu, any of the major streaming services who would be willing to help underwrite the cost. Because as Gossett said here, this is expensive stuff. And particularly to render this stuff correctly, I imagine there would be a massive amount of digital effects. But uh, to their credit, Disney has done a fantastic job in conjunction with LucasArts, their subsidiary now, in creating those smart stages where you effectively have digitally generated imagery providing the background and moving with the actors. And so I I could see this thing as being a full-blown animated, highly detailed animated series, as much as I could see it a blending of high grade effects and and imagery with live action people and, or even even the hybrid. I just the other evening, I, I got drawn into Frank Miller's The Spirit and was watching that. And if you look at 300, and you also look at, what is it, Sin City? Those have a stylized quality of live action and animation. So I I could see an even higher grade version of that, maybe even, being a part of this whole Red Star saga on a streaming show. I mean, I, I think the... The possibilities are endless. Exactly. And I think maybe starting with an animated film or animated short where you can pick up some of the the themes and test the waters. I think one of the, the challenging pieces about this is this is a Soviet-like land that never was. And there could definitely be some careful tiptoeing to not offend. I don't think there's anything in here that's offensive, although I guess, you know, if we were to put the shoe on the other foot, if the lands that they were talking about were America, would we feel the same way? And the question is probably not, because they depict the organizations in charge as quite heartless. I think that would be something to to really think about and be sensitive to as they approach this. Uh, Agreed. Uh, But also at the same time, be steeped in the realism that many totalitarian regimes, in some ways, as it relates to their agencies, are fairly heartless. And you are just another cog in a larger wheel of things. But what where Gossett doesn't lose the heart is when he's talking about the individuals on the battlefield, the soldiers, that that has so much heart to it that more than more than compensates for the impersonal large bureaucratic institution that is churning along and manipulating things to cause the common soldier here to be a part of it. You know, I, I think that's I think that's a universal theme, frankly. And and you can do it very tactfully where you are not being culturally insensitive. Uh, but just depicting that dynamic. So JJ, I want to thank you for coming in and helping to not only provide an incredible deep dive over in comics archaeology and unearthing those gems, but truly making this a celebration of the landmark and groundbreaking work 
that the Red Star is. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed diving back in and re-experiencing the Red Star as trying as much as possible to appreciate it as if it were the first time. But really, it was it was such a great experience. So thanks for giving me that opportunity. And and really, I recommend it for for folks out there. I would say age wise, this is probably a teen teen and up story. Some of the battles are quite gruesome, but I think overall the story is lively and relatable. Kids. Hey, go on.